0: Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Today, we are kicking off a brand new series. We're going to spend the next three to six months walking through a collection of Jesus' most famous teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why would we spend that much time? This will be one of the longest series we've ever done here at Bridgepoint. Why spend that much time walking through essentially three chapters of the Bible, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7? And at least for me, um, it is so important for us to wrap our minds around what what the Sermon on the Mount really is. Because not just a collection of moral teachings, this is the essence of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I mean, we talked at length last week that maybe for some of us when we we quote unquote became a Christian, that it was maybe because we raised our hands in summer camp or we checked a box on a connect card or we walked down an aisle. And so now we know that we get to go to heaven when we die. But the reality is to follow Jesus is not about where we go when we die. It's about how will we live while we're here on earth. And this is what Jesus is gonna tell us. If we wanna follow him, here's how we live. In fact, the, the church father, Augustine, who probably has maybe influenced the modern church more than any other of the church followers said, and I quote, the Sermon on the Mount is the perfect standard for the Christian life. If you want to know what it looks like to actually follow Jesus, you want to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And I can even speak from my own life experience. About 15 years ago, I reached a point where I really was like, well, wait a second. Do I just believe this stuff because this is what my, my family handed to me or what other people told me I should believe? Like, what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? And so I wiped the slate clean. I just went back to the gospels and said, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Sermon on the Mount, like it, it changed the trajectory of my life. Like, it forced me to see the world a different way, to, to approach uh, different situations in different ways. Like it has changed who I am. Now, am I perfect? No. Like, just talk to my family. I'm just a co-learner on this journey alongside you. But what I, I can tell you is that if you really, like, take the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we actually try to apply it to our lives, we will find ourselves becoming more and more like him. In fact, I go back through the Sermon on the Mount a handful of times every single year. And every time I read it, there's new ways that Jesus challenges me. Like, I can promise you that over the course of the next few months, like, Jesus is going to step on your toes. He's going to make you uncomfortable. If all we walk away with is just agreeing with everything that Jesus said and said, yep, I already believed all that, then I think we're misreading the whole thing. And so we want to take our time walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it is a collection of Jesus' teaching, but it's actually more than that. So, so what actually is the Sermon on the Mount? Now, to understand that, we have to understand the Gospel of Matthew where the sermon is found. So Matthew is uh, an ancient uh, Jewish writer who compiled a story of Jesus's life. So there's a few things we have to bear in mind. Um, when ancient writers would compile the story of somebody's life, they wouldn't do it chronologically, okay? They didn't do it the, the way that we would think of. Like if you were gonna write a biography of George Washington or Robert Oppenheimer, you'd probably start by describing what their family was like and then talk about the situation surrounding their birth, and then their childhood, and their adolescence, and their career, and you would just go in order. But that is not how gospel writers approached recording Jesus' life. In fact, what they would do is they would take significant events throughout Jesus' life, and then arrange them in a certain order to convey a certain theme or message. For example, if you've read through the gospels before, you know that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is going to turn over the tables in the temple, and he's going to kick out the money changers and cleanse the whole thing. That happens at the end of those gospels. But if you've ever read the gospel of John, that happens right at the beginning because John is doing something different. He wants you to know that Jesus has come to disrupt the religious establishment of the day. And in the same way, Matthew kind of organizes and groups things together for a particular theme. In fact, you might have this picture in your mind that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus going up on a mountain and preaching one magnificent sermon. And maybe that's the case, but what's probably more likely the case is that Matthew compiled a greatest hit selection of Jesus' teaching. That this is all the stuff that he would teach as he traveled throughout different towns and regions, and he compiles it all together. So it's like the, the essence of what he was talking about. But he also does something very interesting. He, he uses a certain technique. Now, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he did not write it with chapters and verses. Those were all put in later so that when we're in a big group gathering, we can follow along. And there's some dispute of whether we should have put chapter breaks and verses where they are. But what Matthew does, he just wrote it out like on a big scroll. But he would use certain literary techniques to clue us in that different things were grouped together. And one of those techniques is something called inclusio. Everybody say inclusio. All right, that wasn't very enthusiastic, all right? And it is not a Harry Potter spell, despite what you might think. Essentially what this is, is this is a sandwiching. You take a same verse or repeated phrase, and you sandwich something in between it. Now we find this in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. It says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now you may notice those words look a little bit smaller than usual, because I want you to compare that with what it says in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35 says Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. So do you see how these are like almost identical? What Matthew is trying to tell us is that in between uh, chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35, everything in there revolves around two things. Jesus either teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, or Jesus healing every kind of sickness and disease. That's exactly what he records in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And if you read Matthew chapter 8 and 9, all it is is story after story after story of Jesus healing various sicknesses and diseases. So you have the intro verse in chapter 4 and the concluding verse in chapter 9. Now, why is this important? Because what Matthew is trying to tell us is that the Sermon on the Mount is not just a collection of moral plans. Or here's what you should do to live a good life. That when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching, here's how to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Or sometimes Matthew will use the phrase kingdom of heaven. And if we're not careful, we approach it from our Western mindset. thinking, oh, well, he's talking about heaven, where we go when we die. But Matthew was writing his gospel for a Jewish audience. And we're going to see that in just a second. And for them, the kingdom of God was not something that happens when you die. It was a very real present reality that in that day they were waiting and longing for. So this idea of the kingdom of God, it kind of has its... um, uh, beginnings uh, in the beginning pages of the old testament. Now we're not going to go through the whole thing. I do want to point out a few things from the second book of the Bible, but in the first book what we read on the very opening pages is God's intended plan was to bring heaven to earth. Like from the beginning the earth was chaotic and disorderly. He wanted to bring heaven to earth and put everything in order. And this is really what the story of the garden of Eden is all about. And God puts Adam and Eve in Eden. He says be fruitful and multiply. I want you to subdue the earth. Like, I want to bring heaven to earth, and I want to use people to do that. But you guys know the story. Instead of imaging God, Adam and Eve imaged themselves and unleashed sin and death into the world. The whole thing's plunged back into chaos. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis is all about what happens when humanity is left to its own devices. Like every story goes from bad to worse until you get to Genesis chapter 12 where God says, I'm not giving up on bringing heaven to earth or bringing it through people. So he comes to a man named Abram, who's later renamed Abraham. And he says, if you trust me and follow me, your descendants will be, be numerous. They will become this mighty nation. They will become my kingdom here on earth and I will bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. I want to show the world what heaven on earth looks like through you and your people. And the rest of the book of Genesis is just detailing how we got from Abraham and Sarah to a multitude of descendants by the time the the book of Exodus begins. I'm not going to recap the whole book of Exodus. We did a series looking at the life of Moses where we walked through the first 15 chapters of Exodus. But there are a few things I want to remind you about the book of Exodus because it begins with God's people. They were fruitful and they multiplied. They did what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Uh, But they were doing this in a time period where they became a threat to the king the pharaoh in Egypt and so when we meet them at the beginning of Exodus we find that God's people are being ruled by an enemy And not only that, but because Pharaoh was concerned about this, he issued a decree to kill all of their sons. But despite this decree, there was one son that was born that was saved. In fact, his mom put him in a basket, put it in the reeds where he was discovered by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. He was given the name Moses and Moses actually grows up in Egypt. And then if you fast forward 80 years, God actually uses Moses to, to be a mouthpiece to Pharaoh. God sets his people free, and it reaches its climax with the Sea of Reeds. So the waters part, God's people pass through. They're actually saved by passing through the water. Immediately then, they are led into the wilderness, and they reach a place called Sinai, where Moses goes up onto this mountain, and he fasts and prays for 40 days. And then he hears from God. He goes He goes down to meet God's people at the base of this mountain, and what he gives them is this whole new way of living. Like when he gives them the, the, the law or the scriptures, what he's not doing is saying, here's what you do so that God's happy with you. He's saying, here's what it looks like to embody heaven on earth. So there are certain of these commands that were just to set them apart from the people around them. So whether that's dietary restrictions, what you can wear, circumcision. But then there are other commands that show them, here's how you embody heaven on earth. So, so for example, uh, every few years, set your slaves free. Forgive all debt. Return land back to its original owner. Even very basic things like don't steal from people, don't murder people. God even told them, listen, I don't want you to have a king. Trust me to lead you. Don't store up a bunch of wealth for yourself. Trust me to provide for you. Don't have a massive standing military. Trust me to protect you. But the story of the nation of Israel is the same of Adam and Eve. They succumb to the same temptation. Well, we do want to be like everybody else. So they appoint for themselves a king. They store up a bunch of wealth. They have a big standing army. They never forgave debt, set the slaves free, returned the land. They worshiped other gods. And this goes on for centuries until finally God says, I'm not going to force myself on you. And so he removes his protection. Their enemies come in and conquer them and actually ship off uh, God's people to a different part of the empire. And this is a period of writing we have in the Old Testament called the exile period. Because God's people were living in exile. And they were wondering, okay, is God's kingdom gone forever then? Is that it? It was like heaven never coming to earth. Then the Old Testament prophets looked forward to a day when God would establish his kingdom once and for all. Every wrong would be made right. Heaven would come to earth. And it would be ushered in by a savior, a messiah, a new Moses. With all that in mind, Matthew starts his gospel by showing Jesus' lineage all the way through the great heroes of faith, all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. And then he tells us the story, that when Jesus kind of hit the scene, God's people, Israel, they were being ruled by an enemy. This time, not the Egyptians, but by the Romans. In fact, Matthew's the only one in his Christmas story to record that Herod, threatened by uh, a potential threat to his throne, issues a decree to kill all of their sons. But there is a baby who's born who survives this decree by fleeing. Where does Jesus flee to? He flees to Egypt. The next story we get is of Jesus' baptism. When he's ready to begin his ministry, he passes through the water. Immediately the spirit leads him into the wilderness where he spends 40 days fasting and praying and hearing from God. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 5 where he goes up onto a mountain with God's people and he gives them a new way of living. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the new Moses. And if that is true, then what Jesus is telling us is this is how we ought to live if we're going to embody heaven on earth. And some of you are like, why didn't you just say that at the beginning? Because I'm trying to show you the homework here. I'm trying to show you that the Sermon on the Mount is not optional for people who follow Jesus. Because throughout church history, there have been so many excuses lobbied to why this is not actually something we're meant to live. In fact, one of the, the most predominant views of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is so misguided, is that the Sermon on the Mount was never intended for us to follow. It was just to show us how sinful we are. We could never live up to God's standard, and we need a Savior. By the way, this is how people talk about the Old Testament as well. I think there's just such a misreading of the Old Testament. It wasn't written just to show you you need a Savior. And the reason I know this is because I want to spoil the end of the Sermon on the Mount for you. I don't even have these verses on the screen because I wasn't sure if I was going to have time to get to them. But in Matthew chapter 7, if you don't have your Bible, just listen. This is how Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. He says, "Therefore." In other words, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, now go do this stuff. If you don't live this way, you're living a foolish life. But if you want to be wise, if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you have to apply this to our lives. So it's not, here's a standard you could never meet, don't even try. It's no, here's God's standard, and he wants us to actually live into his way of living, moving, and being in the world. Now, and in medieval church history, especially in the Catholic church, they kind of developed this idea, this belief. Okay, yes, Christians are supposed to live this way, but that's not really feasible for the ordinary everyday person. So this is just for priests, like professional clergy. So people like me. But the problem with that is, who is Jesus talking to? He's not talking to the religious leaders of his day. We're going to see this in just a moment. But he's talking to ordinary, everyday people. And he's saying, this is the way you are supposed to live. And there's still even more people who say, well, this is just like when heaven comes to earth, like in the future, this is how we'll live, but not how we should live now. But again, to me, it seems very clear. Jesus is saying, start living this way now. And I think the reason that we have such a propensity for giving excuses why not to follow the Sermon on the Mount It's because it's hard, and it's challenging, and it's difficult. But if we're actually going to be the people he's called us to be, then over the next several months as we walk through this, it's not just, here, let's learn about what Jesus said, or isn't that an interesting historical fact? But will we actually take this teaching and start to live the way of Jesus? Now, having said all that, that's just intro for the Sermon on the Mount. Are you guys actually ready to read some of the Sermon on the Mount? Some of you are like, I fell asleep 10 minutes ago, and I I get that. But I want us to start today. We're going to start at the very beginning, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Here we go. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount it starts with this collection of blessings that we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes. And I actually hate that we call them the Beatitudes because sometimes you get sermons like, these are the attitudes we've got to adopt and we've got to do this to get God's blessing. That is not what Jesus is saying here. We're going to unpack that in just a minute. In fact, the word Beatitude is just a Latin word for blessing. Like I wish we just called this, here's the nine blessings. Because this was actually not an uncommon way in Jewish culture that they would uh, kind of take They would talk about, here's what it looks like to follow God. When you follow God, he's going to bless you, and this is what his blessing looks like. I actually want to share with you um, from a Jewish book of Scripture that's not part of the holy canon, but this would be kind of more apocryphal, like 1st, 2nd, 3rd Maccabees, 4th Ezra, um, Enoch, books like that. There's one called the Wisdom of Sirach. And as you hear this, this is going to sound like something straight out of Proverbs or Psalms, but this was a very common blessing that was declared back even in Jesus day. So I want to look at Sirach 25 verse 7 through 11. It says I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with ox and ass together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything. To whom can we compare the one who has it? Now, taking it at face value, this seems like it came straight out of Scripture, right? Like Here's a blessing, a common blessing to be spoken over people. But how does the wisdom of Sirach describe someone who is blessed? Well, first we know that they're a man. Amen? Oh, man, that was not good. All right, everyone's turned against me already. And Sirach says, you're, you're a man. You're a man who finds delight with his kids, right? Like you're a good parent. Your kids are growing up in the right way. You have a sensible wife. I'm sure there's a joke there that will turn everyone against me, so we're going to leave that alone. He's somebody who has victory over his foes. Did you catch the one that he doesn't serve his inferior? Like this is what it looks like to live a blessed life. But also, I think that when we think of a blessed life today, uh, I think that that's probably what most of us think of. right? To have a blessed life, you want to have a happy and healthy marriage, right? You want to have all the tools to parent your kids so they grow up to be responsible human beings. You want to have success in your business. You want God to put your foes to shame. And of course, we don't want to be serving. We want other people to serve us. Like, that is the good life. Except the problem with that is when you really start to look at it, That is the complete opposite of who Jesus was. Because Jesus was a man, but he was a man who never married, Jesus did not have biological kids. Jesus' foes, they actually nailed him to the cross and killed him. And Jesus' last act of service before he went to his crucifixion, he washed his disciples' feet. He served those who were inferior to him. And so on one hand, we have this whole way the world says we're blessed. And what Jesus does is he subverts the whole thing. And so when the the first audience heard, oh, blessed is he, all right? Okay, so we're about to get this list of blessings. Those people would have been thinking, how do we get this blessing? Now, when Jesus, hang with me on this. If I lose you, there's time for Q&A at the end. When Jesus was teaching, what we encounter is a third language in the Bible. Because the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But Jesus actually spoke Aramaic, which would have been closer to Hebrew than to Greek. And so the word that Matthew records for the word blessed is the word makarios, which almost has this idea of being happy. And, and some of your translations might even say happy is the one. That is an awful translation of what this actually means. Because in our context, we think happiness is like this feeling, and sometimes it's fleeting, but but we it's, it's so much more than happiness. See, when Jesus spoke in Aramaic, it would have been much more like the Hebrew. Now, there's two words for blessing in Hebrew. One of them is barak, and barak is when we actually, like, we ask God to bless somebody. So, God, would you barak so-and-so, or God, would you you barak me? Would you give me blessing? But that's not the word that we find here. We actually find is it's closely related to the Hebrew word Eshray which actually is the same word we find in Psalm chapter one. And so I don't have time to go into that, but that's the one where it says, Eshre is the one who delights in God and in his way, who doesn't stand in the counsel of the wicked. You know that one? All right, so this idea is that you're not asking God to bless somebody, but they're already blessed. Maybe a better translation would be, God's favor rests on these people. So they've already been blessed. They already have received God's favor. And so as they're sitting there and they're about to hear, okay, who has received God's favor? And maybe the people in the crowd are thinking, what do I have to be like to receive God's favor? Instead of hearing, you got to be successful in business, have a great marriage and kids, they hear, well, you have God's favor when you're poor in spirit, when you're humble, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, when people persecute you. That doesn't really seem like God's favor. Furthermore, who is he talking to? Well, it says that the crowds gathered around, so he went up on the mountain to teach his disciples. So he's talking to his disciples, but certainly these crowds were around, whether they were listening or maybe Jesus just is, is using them as an object lesson here. Who are the crowds? Well, let's go back just a couple verses. So you remember the one we read a few minutes ago, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went around teaching and preaching. Do you remember that? Hopefully that was just a few minutes ago. All right. Now there's two verses in between that one and where the Sermon on the Mount begins. Let's read those. Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. It says, then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they were brought to him all who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So these crowds who were following Jesus, were they the religious elite? Were they the wealthy? Were they the prestigious in society? No. These are people who had been sick, who had been paralyzed, who had been demon-possessed. And remember, they're they're in an honor-shame culture. So so these are the people who are definitely pushed to the margins of society. Like, I don't even have, like, a way that I can quantify this for our modern context. Like, I feel like it's like if AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, started hanging out together. just like, everybody's mad, because you can't do that. You can't hang out with those people. Or maybe in high school, when you had, like, okay, so the, the jocks don't hang out with the nerds who don't hang out with the cheerleaders. And if you did, then you're going to bring your social status down only like that to the millionth degree. Because remember, in that culture, if you were sick, it was seen as a curse from God. Like you were not able to go worship in the temple. You could not get close to God. Not only that, but your uncleanness would have been contagious to the people around you. So, so not only are you separated from God, nobody wanted to be around you either, because then they would be made unclean. So here are people who who've been told that God's mad at you, he's disgusted with you, they've been pushed to the margins of society, and Jesus looks at these people and says, God's favor's on you. God's favor is on you, those who are poor in spirit. There's a debate in some theological circles, because when Luke records this, he actually says, those who are poor. So is it poor, poor in spirit? I can promise you the crowds that were there, they were both poor and poor in spirit, they were economically poor because they would not have been able to work in the marketplace. But they were also poor in spirit. They were just broken to the end of themselves, like, like totally humble, no pretension, no nothing, because they had no body. Now, we could spend time walking through each of these nine blessings and talking about what each one means. We're not going to do that because I actually think the best way to understand these is taken as a whole. And there's a number of ways we could figure out, okay, what did you know Matthew intend for us to know? Some people say, well, it's like a poem or uh, you know, these ones are grouped together, these ones are grouped together. I think we can make a whole lot of that that doesn't really make a difference. But I do think that the New Testament scholar Scott McKnight Gives a helpful framework for at least kind of quickly encapsulating all nine of these blessings. He says the first three could be grouped together, the second three and the third three. And kind of the, the categories, the first one would be the first three are talking about those who are the humbled poor, like the people who have no money, they're broken, they're humbled. I think about um, AA. Now, I myself have not been a part of AA, but I have some friends who have been part of it, and I really respect what they do. In fact, we host an AA meeting here at our church once a week. And, and as people share with me their experience, um, nobody walks into AA the first time because things are going great in their life. Now, usually people walk in because they've hit rock bottom, because they've lost everything or they feel like they're on the verge of losing everything. And when you walk in, you also know, guess what? Everybody else is or has been in that same position. And so you go in and you're able to just have this brutal honesty about what's going on in your life, your struggle, your brokenness, and instead of finding shame and judgment, you find acceptance and healing through the support of other people. By the way, isn't that a picture of what the church ought to be, like where you don't have to like put on this mask and pretend to be somebody else, but you can actually be real and open and honest about these struggles? But the reality is that for a lot of people, you can only get help in AA when you've reached rock bottom, because when you reach the end of yourself, you have nowhere else to go. And it's as if Jesus is saying, when you reach the end of yourself, then you can enter the kingdom of God. Then you'll be able to see what God's kingdom is like. Because he doesn't say, hey, endure these things and then one day you will be blessed. Yes, some of these are future blessings. But, but the first and the last one, it specifically says, blessed are you because yours already is the king. You're already blessed because you're in a spot where you only depend on God. And I wonder if for some of us, we have not reached rock bottom in our lives. Like our lives have been so comfortable and so easy. And we say, why haven't I seen God move? Because you haven't created any space for God to move because you can handle everything on your own. You're not worried about where your next meal is coming from. You're not worried about how your needs are gonna be taken care of. You can do it on your own. But when we reach the end of ourselves, we can finally see God's kingdom and enter in. The second group would be the group uh, Scott McKnight says are the ones who are pursuing righteousness and justice. Interestingly enough, in the Bible, the words for righteousness and justice are exactly the same. It's this idea like we, we hunger for things to be made right. First, in our relationship with God, right? These are people who've been separated from God, but, but also it made right in our relationships with other people. There's a vertical aspect and a horizontal aspect. It says people who are longing for the day when God's kingdom would come, everyone would be healed, and everyone would be made right with each other. And Jesus says when that's your hunger, when that's what you're longing for, you can enter into the kingdom of God. And then the last group are the group of those who are pursuing peace, I love that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Like peacemakers actually go into conflict situations to actually work to bring about peace. And by the way, peace is not a compromise. Like you think about peacemakers in the time of slavery, right? Like we're not like trying to get a compromise between the slave owner and the slave. Like, can we have nights and weekends off? Like that. No, we want to like to actually bring about peace, the whole thing has to be torn down. But peacemakers go into situations where there is injustice and they seek to bring peace for both the oppressed and the oppressor. Like these are the kinds of people that God says, this is who is blessed. These are the people who enter into the kingdom of God. And to be very careful, though, because it's easy to take these and to say, all right, so I just need to be that, and then I'll get God's blessing. But that's not the case that's being made. He says Jesus doesn't actually say, all right, now be poor in spirit. All right, be humble. All right, pursue righteousness and justice. He doesn't say that. He says the people who are doing that, you're blessed because of of who you are. Probably like the best analogy, and it's not great. I think about like Mark Zuckerberg's children, right? Like his children are blessed simply by the fact of who their parents are, right? Like they're going to grow up in a life that I can only imagine. And I I would assume that one day when when the Zuckerbergs pass on, their kids are going to inherit a lot of that wealth, right? They are just blessed because of who they are. And, And when we reach the end of ourselves, just because of who we are, we're blessed. And when we're blessed, we can actually live that out in our lives. And so I think it really serves really on one hand as an encouragement and as a warning for us. First, an encouragement, because I think there may be some people, and you walked in here today, maybe your spouse doesn't know, your parents don't know, your closest friends don't know, but maybe you definitely feel like you're on the margins, the edges of society. Maybe that's through choices you've made, a battle of addiction, to pornography, alcohol, painkillers maybe you've made some decisions for infidelity in your marriage maybe you know that you haven't been parenting in a way that honors and uplifts your kids and God maybe you feel like a failure because of financial decisions work decisions but maybe you feel like man I I'm really not somebody that needs to be here listen the encouragement is I think Jesus would look at you today and say you're blessed God's favors on you because you finally reached the end of yourself And now you can actually see the kingdom. But on the other hand, it's a warning. I think it could be a warning for most of us. See in Luke, Luke, when he uh, gives his account of Jesus' teaching, you get the blessings, and then there's some curses right after that. Matthew doesn't record that, but there's this implicit warning that when we're not poor in spirit when we don't have to depend on God, when we're comfortable, when we don't have to make peace because things are going pretty well for us and why upset the apple cart? When we're in that position, we're in danger of missing out on the kingdom of God because we aren't seeing things the way God sees them. There's um, a couple of uh, artists, and their name escapes me at the moment, but they're based out of Portland, and I'm stealing this illustration from a guy named Dr. Tim Mackey. He's with the Bible Project, which, by the way, somebody did bring this up to me. They are going through the Sermon on the Mount on the Bible Project podcast right now, but we had planned this way before they made their announcement. So I want to say we started it first. Uh, We're actually going to pass that. They're taking a whole year, so we're going to get past them pretty quick here, but great supplemental resource. But to use this analogy, I think, is so great. Um, Because there's these artists in Portland And they they create what's called shadow art So they'll have something like a big pile of trash And I know the, the picture's not great But it's just trash So imagine you like walk in and you see this And you're like oh it's one of those art exhibits Right like I gotta figure out what this means But as you're watching it They'll shut the lights off And shine a light behind it And it actually shines this picture Of the artists themselves That's their depiction of themselves So what you thought was trash is actually these people. I think we have another picture of a different example. It's this says trash rain, so on the outside it looks like trash, but when you see it from the right perspective, you see the people. And I wonder if for some of us, because of the comfort in our lives, we look at certain people, and maybe we don't say it like this, but there's certain people that we think are trash, can be thrown away, discarded, unimportant. I don't know who that is. Maybe it's people who are homeless, drug addicts, people who've wounded you and hurt you, and we just think, like, we just throw them away. But when we begin to see them the way God does, we see people created in his image. And I can promise you that as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, some of the commands Jesus gives on surface look like trash. What do you mean turn the other cheek? What do you mean don't let people know about all the good generosity that we're doing? What do you mean develop this life of prayer? Prayer wouldn't even do anything. On the outside, it might look like trash, but when we get to the end of ourselves and we finally see things from God's perspective, we see the world the way God intended for it to be, and we can live that way. I don't really have time for questions, but I'll go ahead and open it up. If anybody has any questions, feel free to raise your hand. We can spend a moment. I know it's a lot. I know it's an intro week. I'm trying to preach two sermons in one. We have questions going once, going twice. All right. So we're going to continue in worship the way we do every single week with a time of communion. And our prayer stations will be open. So if you want to write a prayer to God, you can write it on those pieces of paper and put it in the jar. You can light a candle because throughout church history, it's represented offering a prayer to God. But as you spend time with Jesus today, I think we all fall into one of two groups Maybe you're in that group where you do feel like the outcast, the, the, the people who are poor in spirit. Maybe you have reached the end of yourself. And if that's you, then maybe in your time with Jesus, would you just hear him saying, God's favor is on you. When you finally reach the end of yourself, you can finally see my kingdom. Or maybe you come in today and maybe life's been comfortable, life's been easy, you're not too stressed, you're not too worried. Maybe for us, it would be a time where we would say, Jesus, would you bring me to the end of myself? Would you open my eyes to see other people in the world the way you intend for us to see it? And I think for each of us, we can ask Jesus to give us the strength to enter into his kingdom and walk according to his teachings. So all across this room, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful. We're thankful that... You don't expect us to have everything together before we enter into your kingdom. But that we can be at the end of ourselves and that's right where you want us to be. So I pray right now for everybody who's walked in carrying guilt, shame, condemnation, that in this moment they would experience you. They would know that your favor is on them. That you would give them the strength to enter into your kingdom. And I pray for those of us who to be honest, life's gone well, that you would shake things up. You would break us down. Bring us to the point where we can see the world the way you want us to see it and give us strength to walk according to your teachings. Because at the end of the day, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, You can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.